You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say, our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense for us in this city. Everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. First, communication became digitized and free to everyone. Then, when clean energy became free, things started to move quickly. Transportation dropped dramatically in price. It made no sense for us to own cars anymore because we could call a driverless vehicle or a flying car for longer journeys within minutes. We started transporting ourselves in a much more organized and coordinated way when public transport became easier, quicker, and more convenient than the car. Now I can hardly believe that we accepted congestion and traffic jams, not to mention the air pollution from combustion engines. What were we thinking? Sometimes I use my bike when I go to see some of my friends. I enjoy the exercise and the ride. It kind of gets the soul to come along on the journey. Funny how some things seem never seem to lose their excitement. There's a typo. (laughs) Walking, biking, cooking, drawing, and growing plants. It makes perfect sense and reminds us of how our culture emerged out of a close relationship with nature. In our city, we don't pay any rent because someone else is using our free space whenever we do not need it. My living room is used for business meetings when I am not there. Once in a while, I will choose to cook for myself. It is easy. The necessary kitchen equipment is delivered at my door within minutes. Since transport became free, we stopped having all those things stuffed into our home. Why keep a pasta maker and a crepe cooker crammed into our cupboards? We can just order them when we need them. This also made the breakthrough of the circular economy easier. When products are turned into services, no one has an interest in things with a short lifespan. Everything is designed for durability, repairability, and recyclability. The materials are flowing more quickly in our economy and can be transformed to new products pretty easily. Environmental problems seem far away since we only use clean energy and clean production methods. The air is clean, the water is clean, and nobody would dare to touch the protected areas of nature because they constitute such value to our well-being. In the cities, we have plenty of green space and plants and trees all over. I still do not understand why in the past we filled all free spots in the cities with concrete. Shopping? I can't really remember what that is. For most of us, it has been turned into choosing things to use. Sometimes I find this fun, and sometimes I just want the algorithm to do it for me. It knows my taste better than I do by now. When AI and robots took over so much of our work, we suddenly had time to eat well, sleep well, and spend time with our people. 
The concept of rush hour makes no sense anymore, since the work that we do can be done at any time. I don't really know if I would call it work anymore. It is more like thinking time, creation time, and development time. For a while, everything was turned into entertainment, and people did not want to bother themselves with difficult issues. It was only at the last minute that we found out how to use all these new technologies for better purposes than just killing time. My biggest concern is all the people who do not live in our city. Those we lost on the way. Those who decided that it became too much, all this technology. Those who felt obsolete and useless when robots and AI took over big parts of our jobs. Those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They live different kind of lives outside of the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities. Others just stay in the empty and abandoned houses in small 19th century villages. Once in a while, I get annoyed about the fact that I have no real privacy, nowhere I can go and not be registered. I know that somewhere everything I do, think and dream, is recorded. I just hope that nobody will use it against me. All in all, it's a good life, much better than the path we were on, where it became so clear that we could not continue with the same model of growth. We had all these terrible things happening, lifestyle diseases, climate change, the refugee crisis, environmental degradation, completely congested cities, water pollution, air pollution, social unrest, and unemployment. We lost way too many people before we realized that we could do things differently. And cut. Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. That was creepy. And uh, yeah, there's five minutes of your life you will never get back. But uh, this is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 376 of this podcast. And that was an article op-ed under the category of leadership strategy from November 10th, 2016 by Ida Aachen representing the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum is a contributor at Forbes. This is an article from Forbes. And is it just me or is that an incredibly creepy thing? Is that thing that I just read for you, just an incredibly creepy thing. Doesn't, is it just me or does that kind of make your skin crawl? It has a twilight zone feel to it. And you know, <clears throat> dare I say it, it has a, a very, um, uh, what what's that word? Communistic feel to it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like communism. Actually, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that is communism. That That is communism that you're describing. You, you own nothing and be happy. That's what the big idea is. But of course, like I said, this is 2016. This was a while ago. Uh, this is not something that was just published today. This is something that's been in the works for some time. And... You know, it would, it would be one thing if this were Wired magazine, and this is just kind of a futurist, technologist, 
type of opinion piece by somebody who likes to think outside the box. It'd be one thing if this were science fiction and we're reading the opening basically to uh, a novel exploring these ideas. But the World Economic Forum is, uh, I mean, they're, they're a, they're a legit organization and an international authority. They're, They're not nobody. They're not writers of science fiction. Actually, I think maybe they've never read any science fiction to know that these ideas have been explored and we have reason to believe that their implementation will not go well. This will not end well. But you can't tell these folks that. They have heard the complaints. They've heard the grumbling. They think they are so very smart and it will work this time. As long as we get everybody to do it, it'll work this time. Now, you and I, we should be thinking about, okay, in in the pursuit of making this work, uh, how many people are, are you going to destroy, right? It, you're only looking at the benefit as you see it. And you're acknowledging that there is a cost. Not everybody likes this idea. Also, you will have no privacy. Uh, also, it, you're just wish casting that everybody's going to love ordering small appliances, small household appliances when it's time to make dinner. And what if you don't have enough of them in the area? And what if there's only five in your district, your neighborhood, your complex, your unit, and everyone else got to them first or didn't return them on time or they returned them in a dirty, gross condition or a dozen other questions. What what if someone doesn't take good care of them? Then what happens to them? Well, they don't have to replace it because there's no money, right? It wasn't theirs, so they don't need to replace it. What happens when your centrally planned supply chain dynamics break down because you underestimated how much of such and such we're going to need? Or you overestimated. You have way too much of it. And now it's like we've got all this extra, all these extra widgets. And why? What do we do with them? Well, I don't know. Just put them over there. There's a hubris to this. And there's a creepiness to it. And there's an inconsistency to it as well. I mean, the author, this Ida Alkin, she says, sometimes I use my bike when I go to see some of my friends. Okay, so you you have a bicycle. So your bike is your bike or is that the community's bike? Is that the people's bike? Is it is it your bike or is it the world's bike? Is that humanity's, humankind's, people kind's bike? I thought we didn't own anything. You you you're already contradicting yourself. So you own that. Are you allowed to, No, you don't own anything else. No, you don't you don't own anything. You don't own a car, a house, appliances, or clothes, but you do own a bike. You must be from Portland. That's all I can figure. Uh, I happen to find science fiction fascinating. I'm 
reading through Orson Scott Card's Ender's series. I think that's what you're supposed to call it, the Enderverse or what have you. I am most of the way through Ender's Shadow, very much enjoying it. It's brilliant. It's very, very, very smart. Uh, But I'm reading through that. I've read a fair amount, digested a fair amount of science fiction in my life. And I also grew up with a lot of popular science, popular mechanics, National Geographic, Discovery Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine in the house. And I am fascinated when I see old uh, issues of popular science, popular mechanics, old issues from 1950s, 1960s. And invariably, you will find every other issue, every other old issue of popular science and popular mechanics uh, with a flying car on the cover. I mean, the Jetsons was on the air, you know, new episodes, new content, not reruns, what, 60 years ago, something like that, 70 years ago. So this idea of, oh yeah, we'll just jump in a flying car and go where we want to go. Easy, no problem. I mean, that's not a new idea. But there's a difference between conceiving of it and it actually being feasible. And when I say feasible, I don't just mean there's a prototype somewhere. And you saw a YouTube video of somebody making it fly you know, a little bit across a big field somewhere and then high-fiving one another and cheering and all that. No, 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 no. Is it feasible? Is it scalable? And is it practical? Is it cost-effective? Is this something that we are ready for, you know, 2016? 2030s, 14 years out. You could just put anything 14 years into the future. And that gives you plenty of time to work and operate without the pesky questions of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How's how's that coming along? Oh, yeah. You know, imagine, because I do have a job. uh, Imagine somebody I work with hitting me up over text message or Teams or email calling me up. Hey, Garrett, uh, I need this location built in systems in the database and the application object servers and IDE and deployed, and we need to com test it. And how, how soon do you think you could get that done? Oh, how about 2030? What? <laughs> and of course, the naysayer, to my point, will come back and they'll say, well, Garrett, I mean, that's a little, that's a little different. Like you were just saying scalable and practical and people need time to get this stuff accomplished. Yes. Yes, they do. But <clears throat> what is it that they're actually trying to accomplish? That's my question. You know, if we get to 2030 and all of the really pleasant, happy sounding, euphorically utopian, utopia means literally nowhere, by the way, but all of these, everything is great, wonderful sunshine and rainbows and unicorn kisses uh, things that are in this article, this op-ed, this feat of the imagination. You know, if all those things are not 
a part of the mix, but all of the negatives are a part of the mix, plus many more besides, which are not included here. They're just kind of, they're, they're kind of hinted at, like, yeah, we know it could go awry. Yeah, privacy, that could be an issue when you have no privacy. Yeah, I hope it, I hope nobody uses all this information about me against me, but oh well. No, not oh well. Have you read nothing on the history of Russia? Have you read nothing on the history of China? Have you read nothing on the history of France? Do you know nothing of history whatsoever? I mean, at a bare minimum, you should be reading the histories of the places where the ideas you're espousing uh, come from were tried. And how did that go? At, at a minimum. Uh, but there's either an ignorance uh, accidental or there's an intentional ignorance of we don't care. But yeah, we know. We know that this is not going to sell, but we are banking on ourselves being the arbiters and therefore we're safe. You know, so long as I'm the one who's deciding what to do with everybody else's privacy, whether to abuse it or not, whether to misuse it, whether to unperson them, whether to throw them down the memory hole, whether to silence them, whether to disappear them in the middle of the night. So long as I'm the one making that decision, eh, you know, it's whatever. It's fine. It'll be fine. Yes, yes, I know. You're you're worried, but it's fine. Calm down. Flying cars. Right? There's an abracadabra quality to this vision of the future. And one has to wonder if COVID was grown in a lab and released on purpose as part of a chain reaction globally to reset all of our political and economic systems along these lines. Uh, one, one has to wonder. I, I'm not saying that that's a claim. I'm not claiming that that is the case. But I am saying that it is plausible when you see that the way the pandemic was related to and even still is being related to uh, doesn't add up. When you see the callous, flippant commentary from the same folks giving us the lockdowns uh, with regards to your liberty, with regards to the economic feasibility of you not working perpetually and still needing to feed your family, pay rent. You know, it's crazy that you had people who were either renting properties out like we were or renting properties like we were through COVID, uh, basically told by Democrats, oh, yeah, you know what? If people can't pay their rent, it's fine. It's, it's totally fine. Well, yeah, but what if, what if I need them to pay their rent? No, 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 no. It's, it's totally fine. Yeah. Well, can I evict them? No. No, you can't do that. Well, why? Because COVID. They can't help it. But you can help it. Yeah, no. No, this is for the greater good. You what? Huh? Yeah, no, you can't evict them. You can't evict them. I mean, if you're renting, 
The flip side is you can't be evicted. But if you are renting a property out, you all of a sudden are just stuck with whoever's in there and however they want to treat the place and however they want to pay or not pay or whenever they want to pay or not pay. And and they know that and you know that. And it has a chilling effect. You know, the tragedy of the commons is that when something is everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. And there's nowhere that we see this working well over an extended period of time with the broader populace. There's nowhere. Things don't become everybody's responsibility and then get better and better and better. Now the left will say, oh, it's just awful. It's awful that profit motive has to be in the mix. We should be better than that. We will be better than that. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, we'll just abolish private property. Simple. We'll abolish private property and redistribute everything to everybody from each according to his ability to each ever, uh, to to each according to his need. As uh, simple. Yeah, but what about the people who have property and they don't want to give it up? Oh, well, I mean, they should be better. Yeah, but what if they think they are better actually having property? Well, we're just going to take it away, and then they'll they'll find out. They'll learn. Well, yeah, but what if they don't let you take it away? Oh, well, the needs of the many, right? And and this is how you very quickly turn into the darkest dystopian society that could be imagined. Because this person says, no, this is mine. And because the powers that be, all of a sudden, those who have hijacked your political process for your own good, by the way, it's not cheating as long as they win in the end. It's cheating if they lose, but it's not cheating if they win. See? And so you ask yourself, what are the rules? Oh, the rules are that we win. Yeah, that's uh, those are the rules. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, seem, those seem like really bad rules. I don't like those rules. I'd like to break those rules. Ooh, no, 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 no. But they hijack your political process, and then they say, well, we don't recognize that this is yours. This does not belong to you anymore. No, everyone else needs this thing. And then at what point does it become a, your body is not yours? That was teased through COVID as well. Hey, let's have some kind of biometric implant that's going to track whether you've had your vaccine, how you're taking care of your body, your vital signs, so that public health officials can figure out how to manage your population due to COVID. Uh, Wait a second. If that's not an invasion of privacy, if that's not a violation of my bodily autonomy, I I don't know what is. I might not be my own as a Christian. I was bought with a price, but I wasn't bought (laughs) with a price by you. My body does not belong to you. If you think it does, it sounds an awful lot like slavery. Like you think I'm just your slave. That doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like slavery. I have no choice in the matter. I'm going to get this injection or lose my job, lose my home, lose all my friends, lose access to my family. In the craziest sectors, you had 
children taken away from parents, parents losing their visitation rights over their children if they were separated from the other parent, you know, divorced families. It actually, in in an interesting way, reminds me of this next chapter of, and this is why we got married, that I'm going to start writing today. And this next chapter is What the Declining Divorce Rate Belies. That's the title of it. That is also the subject of it. You see, the divorce rate is going down. And central planners of the mindset in that article in Forbes from 2016 that I just read for you at the top of the episode, they will look at a problem like the divorce rate and they will say, ah, that's awful. Yeah, that's, that's awful. You know, when I was a kid in the 90s, early 2000s, the divorce rate was something like 50% in America. 50% of American marriages ended in divorce. And that was bad, right? Like At least I heard that statistic from people who thought that that was bad. And I thought that that was bad because divorce is not good. And then I watched my parents get divorced when I was in junior high and I learned firsthand that divorce is not good. Divorce is bad. So a central planner looks at that and they say, yeah, we need to get that divorce rate down. Yeah. Yeah. What can we do? How can we re-engineer society? How can we channel Edward Bernays into pop culture and product placement and advertising and government policy and lesson plans in the public schools and leadership books for big tent Christian mainstream in this country. You know, I mean, the central planners look at something like this and they say, all of the above, we're going to find every possible kinder, gentler way of being the nanny state here coming through for these infants we are so superior to, that we are governing, we are going to do the thinking for. And I've got it. I got it. I figured it out. What's that? People will stop getting divorced uh when they stop getting married. Wait, what? Yeah, no, right, right, right. You can't get divorced if you don't get married to begin with. Huh? Huh? Well, yeah, divorce is bad, but marriage is good. That's why divorce is bad. Divorce is bad because marriage is good. Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, no. It's just not worth it, right? Why why would you put yourself through the pain and mess of a divorce when you could just uh, not form that attachment to begin with? It's better to have never loved at all than it is to have loved and lost. Ah, wait a second. No, that's actually, that's, that's exactly backwards. No, I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. No, no, no. It, it's, it's, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved before. Mm, mm-mm, don't think so. I mean, that, that's how a central planner looks at something like this. 
And it, it isn't going to be that they show up with jackboots at your door and say, we received a report that you have someone in your household who recently got married, contrary to public health standards. You know, that's not the way that's going to go. But the way that it will go in this country with this prosperous people who think they are actually in the driver's seat of their lives, but are actually seen as slaves <laughs> to their betters, to the experts in every sphere, it will be, hey, here's another movie and another movie and another movie and a TV show and another TV show and another TV show and every song on the radio and all the books that are fit to read that'll make it to the bestsellers list and another article and another and another and another all the news that's fit to print as we see it and you know why don't we just why don't we just do the brave new world thing you know Aldous Huxley he was onto something there I think he was onto something yeah huh no, that that was that was a cautionary tale. Now, that wasn't prescriptive. Yeah, but you know, if people don't form those attachments to begin with, then you won't have any jealousy. You won't have people thinking that they own anything else. I mean, if you can't claim some kind of an ownership over your husband or your wife, well, then you won't think that you have a right to own anything else. So if we can nip that in the bud, everybody belongs to everybody. Everybody belongs to nobody and everybody all at the same time. Actually, you're profoundly alone, but you can mask that. You can conceal that. Yeah, no, no, no. It'll be great. It'll be great. You know, I'm not saying that this is all some big, carefully devised uh, scheme and conspiracy. Uh specifically related to marriage. What I am saying is that this is a big centralized scheme and conspiracy uh, with regards to everything to do with our humanity, uh, all of our human being, being human, uh, including but not limited to marriage. You can't leave marriage outside of this ambition to reform humanity uh, the way that the internationalists had a view to. I mean, don't take my word for it. I, I, I love my brother, for instance. I don't think he listens to this podcast. Bryce, if you are listening, by all means, let me know. But I get the distinct impression when we talk about politics that you are not listening. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it that way. And if you're not listening when I'm talking to you uh, directly, I don't I don't know that you're listening to my podcasts. So, you know, I talk with my brother about some of this stuff, and he's just like, no, that's crazy. No. And so I'll, I'll reference a book like The Internationalists by Scott J. Shapiro and Duna Hathaway, and I'll say, look, like these, these folks are highly lauded for having told the history here. They have the receipts. Don't take my word for it. These folks think that this is a good thing. They, they wrote the internationalists with a view to praising the internationalists. And it's, it's very, uh, 
it's very much not science fiction. This is, this is history. This is our history, and you should know it. You should know where these ideas came from and what inspired them. And it makes sense that you have a, a kind of collective trauma in the form of World War I and World War II, striking at a time when there is a very high degree of confidence, self-confidence, and also godlessness. And those two things coming together in the elites, the intellectual elites, academic elites, political elites, corporate business elites, the richest, smartest people in the world in America, the UK, France, around the world. They wanted to do nothing less than bring about world peace. That's why the League of Nations. That's why the United Nations. That's why the World Economic Forum. That is why we have the International Monetary Fund. That's why we have so many of these systems. And that is also why our public schools are teaching kids what they're teaching to a great extent. That's why our pop culture influences look like they do to a great extent. You know, there's all this hubbub right now about Walt Disney Company trying to strong arm Florida's state government to not pass the so-called, this is not in the language of the bill, by the way, and it's not what the bill is actually called. It's what the demagogues on the left have tried to characterize the bill as, but it's they're calling it the don't say gay bill. You've definitely heard of it, no doubt. But Walt Disney tried to strong arm the elected government, the duly elected government of the state of Florida by threatening economic repercussions, effectively threatening sanctions, as if the duly elected government of Florida is not actually the government, as if Walt Disney is the higher authority. (laughs) And so Walt Disney Company has just lost its special self-governing privileges. They basically had a county-level governmental authority within the state of Florida. But much more, right? No county, no single county does the kinds of things, says the kinds of things, gets as full of itself like Walt Disney's corporate leadership uh, just did with Florida. So they have that much power on top of all the other power that they have. That's the better way to look at it. They are not as, as insignificant as a county government. They are all of the above. That plus this, 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 and this. But Walt Disney, I was just telling my oldest son this the other day, Walt Disney, the man, originally started out as a, a propaganda. He did propaganda work. Now, several others did as well. Dr. Seuss did propaganda work. Lots of people worked for the government through World War II. But I am persuaded that Walt Disney did wartime propaganda when the war was on and spent the rest of his life doing peacetime propaganda once the war was over. Winning the peace, as you might say. And I do believe he was enlisted in this overarching goal of reforming humanity. Let's strip away the distinctives 
of American culture, Christianity. Let's boil everything down to just faith, trust, and pixie dust. Believe in yourself. Let's make every story about children who have somehow gotten separated from their parents and now have to figure this out on their own. Let's put these children in a state of nature repeatedly over and over from every culture until at the end, what you have is a whole world's worth of children who have been raised on Walt Disney's fare, Walt Disney's content, Walt Disney's propaganda to think and feel along certain lines. And that ends up becoming a great unifier, a common denominator, shared experience. Except when parents opt out, except when parents are like, no, no, I'm not comfortable with this. They've decided, apparently, with the passage of the Don't don't Say Gay Bill, to put a same-sex kiss, romantic kiss, between two female characters in this upcoming Lightyear film back into the movie. They had toyed, no pun intended, toyed with uh, putting that into the movie. And then they took it out for some reason, which is telling. That's so, (laughs) that's so slimy. I'm sorry, but you take it out for what reason, right? If it's such a noble, good thing that you're going to put it in there, then why'd you take it back out again? Well, because parents might not be ready for it. Yeah, what you mean is you're grooming parents and children both. You're you're seducing all of the above. And you're not sure that they're ready for that level of intensity just yet. But when when they are, when they are ready for it, oh, you're not going to do what we want legislatively in this state? You know, it's like the, the cartoon villains in old films. The rich guy, the stereotypical Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. I own this town. <laughs> but it's Walt Disney. There's a plot twist for you. Can't get divorced if you don't get married to begin with. And Why do you have fewer and fewer young people getting married to begin with? Well, I'm convinced it's for a few reasons. One of those reasons is, quite frankly, because their parents' marriages failed. Period. Uh, One of the hardest things to overcome for myself on the front end and also early in our marriage and even on up to the present has been this insecurity that I don't know what this looks like. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of us have probably known someone who had a decent marriage. But it's a different way of knowing when you just, you see that they seem to have a good marriage when you see them, uh, in the context that you see them, as often as you see them, which, you know, unless you're living in their house, unless they're your parents and you're growing up watching them, that's going to be the minority of your time. It's not going to be the majority of your time. So you see their marriage and you say, ah, it looks pretty good, but I don't know the nuts and bolts. I don't understand the day to day in and out of what it takes to make a marriage work. 
And so for my part, I really had to choose to embrace what God's word says about marriage in order to overcome the insecurity that I'm not going to know how to have a healthy marriage. I'm not going to know how to love my wife well, how to be a good husband, how to lead my family well. I'm going to have to just trust that God's word is sufficient as a starting point, as a test, as a rubric. And it doesn't mean that I'm only reading God's word when it comes to figuring out how to have a healthy marriage, by no means. But it is to say that'll at least be my stopgap. And that'll be my filter. And when I get advice from somebody, I'm going to filter it through God's word. Let that be true. And if the advice they're giving me, if that matches what I'm reading in God's word, okay, cool. Let's try that. And I say try that because if it turns out that that's actually doing more harm than good and it violates, I just didn't see it on the front end, but now that I see it, it's like, yeah, it's getting in the way of me obeying and being faithful to God according to his word. Well then, yeet. <laughs> but I, that is what I'm going to write about. I am going to write about in this next chapter, the false security, false sense of accomplishment we might feel when we see the divorce rate going down. And this should be a caution towards anybody who's favorable towards the central planners. It's just the kind of metric that a bureaucrat would tout as he's trying to get a raise, get a promotion, work his way up the ladder. A bureaucrat who's tasked with getting that divorce rate down, because that is a metric. Oh, simple. I just shut this off. Yeah, but that that's young people getting married. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, but if they don't get married to begin with, they're also going to miss out on all the benefits of marriage. Couldn't we just couldn't we just teach people maybe what it takes to not get divorced? No, that that'd be a lot harder be a lot more work. All my superiors care about is this metric. So that's all I care about. Something's broken in our conception of marriage if we're content to look at the divorce rate and that's all. That's a lazy way to go about it. Okay, you didn't get divorced, but also you stayed married and you're not honoring God with your marriage. It's a mess. It's a shambles. Yeah, you didn't get divorced, but you also didn't get married to begin with. And instead of getting married, you just live with that gal for a few years. And then you guys disagree about something. You decide you don't like each other anymore. Have a fight, have an argument about something stupid. And you're out because you weren't committed to begin with. So it's not like you're breaking your word. It's like returning that small appliance. Hey, I don't need this crepe maker on the shelf in my garage all the time. Yeah, send it back. I want a waffle maker now. Yeah, I'm feeling like waffles this morning. Ooh, you're losing it. You're, you're losing it. That's insane. 
That's crazy. That's not how we were designed. We were not designed for that. That is not a recipe for health as individuals. That's not a recipe for romantic health. That's not a healthy love life. You are using the other person. And I hate to break it to you, if that's how you approach them, they are probably using you too. If they're content with it, they're probably using you too. And not in a fun way. Or at least it won't be fun when they decide your old news. Someone else would be more useful. That's not bueno. That is the next chapter, by the way, after this one, is distinguishing serial monogamy from fidelity. Listen, you being committed to one person at a time, (laughs) that's not marriage. Marriage is for life. One person at a time, that's not marriage. That's something else. So if you're going to be committed to this person for life and be faithful to them in sickness and in health, rich or poor, till death do you part, why don't you just put a ring on it and make it a vow? This is a good case in which to make a vow and be faithful. Faithlessness is being baked into the equation at every level. But we can work against that in ourselves first by being faithful, by meditating on God's faithfulness. And how would it work as Christians if God was as faithless as we are? And frankly, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work. And yet our imperfection, our imperfect faithfulness is supposed to be replaced steadily more and more as we follow Christ with the example of faithfulness set by Christ, the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus. Our marriages should look like that, should look like an expression of that faithfulness, God's faithfulness. But that's all the time I've got. Not all my time belongs to you. In fact, even this time, even the time that I was recording this podcast. It doesn't belong to you. It's my time, but I'm giving it. I can't give it if it isn't mine to begin with. So watch out for that as well in this whole great reset, brave new world that the World Economic Forum is trying to hoist on us. Charity goes right out the window. Your ability to give cheerfully is completely kaput. Kaput is the word. Very intentionally chosen there. If you don't own anything. Except your bike. I guess you could give your bike. There. There you go. If you're allowed to own a bike. But then then you really will you really will own nothing. So in any event. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.